Hello and welcome to Plotris. This is Meg. This is Lane. And today we're going to be reviewing Witness, which is the 1985 film. So a little bit of a departure for us. And we are joined by two very special guests today from Just Plain Wrong podcast. So it is two of the three Mennonite librarians who um, <laughs> who review um, Amish, Mennonites, and other plain groups in media. Did I get that right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. good. <laughs> um, so they actually review a lot of uh, bonnet novels or bonnet rippers, which are Amish romances. Lane and I have never um, ventured into that genre. It's not our preferred genre, but uh, I do like listening to their podcast and really getting into to hearing about what that is. So very interesting to me. Well, especially I'm from the Northeast. So I grew up in Jersey and there were always Mennonite bakeries and hmm. like the Pennsylvania Dutch would come to the food town market and do furniture sales on like the third Sunday of every month or whatever. And so I sort of grew up in and around uh, Mennonite and Amish communities, but didn't frankly know very much about them. So even just listening to a couple of your podcasts, I've learned a bunch. I know, right? So have we too. (laughs) (laughs) Would you guys want to introduce yourselves? Yeah. Sure. Um, So I'm Erin. live in Indianapolis. I'm a librarian and yeah, <laughs> really excited to be here to discuss Witness with you both. I'm Tilly. I'm also living in Indiana and also a librarian and also <laughs> excited to be here. <laughs> Meg and I also met at work, so I think a lack of uh, diversity and perspectives is pretty common in the romance <laughs> podcast community. <laughs> that wouldn't surprise me. I will say that Tilly and I don't necessarily enjoy reading bonnet novels and had never read one before we started our podcast. So we really come at it from a, we're Mennonite and we're curious what people are saying about our, (laughs) our cousins, I guess. Um, (laughs) There have been a few times though, where I have told people that I'm reading these bonnet novels so they don't have to. (laughs) Yes, that too. (laughs) Yeah. No, we, I mean, we do read romance novels because we do enjoy them. At least we try to review the ones that we like. We are not purposely reading stuff that we don't enjoy. Mm-hmm. It does happen once in a while, but not on purpose. <laughs> that said, the episodes where we disagree, where one of us is like, you're going to love this. And the other is like, I did not love it. Typically are like our most reviewed. <laughs> People apparently really like the disagreement. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Well, part of the reason I wanted to do Witness, so this was uh, mostly Meg's idea, is because I watched this at at a formative age. I must have been like 17 or 18. And I have referenced it in several podcasts and off the air, uh, several episodes, I should say, because to me, this was like, this is like the epitome of sexual tension. So there's no actual, there's no like break. There's no actual like sexual activity that takes place in the movie. Mm -hmm. So it's just like this heightened sexual tension the entire time. Um, I had only watched it once. So like back in high school, but I referenced it. I know (laughs) many, many times. (laughs) How many times have you watched the sponge bath scene on YouTube? Zero, I promise. Okay. (laughs) I swear. 
but um, I don't know. It just was like this thing it, that it, when I would read certain scenes in romance novels, I'd be like, this is just like witness. Anytime anyone mentions a sponge bath or an adventurer <laughs> spy or a passing resemblance to Harrison Ford. <laughs> it happens to come up, yeah. Uh, and so I was able to convince Lane to do it. So I'm very, very excited about that. I didn't take much convincing. 1985 Harrison Ford sort of did that for you. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so as usual, we'll do a quick, I guess, what do you call the back of the DVD box summary? <laughs> um, so... When a young Amish boy is sole witness to a murder, policeman John Book goes into hiding in Amish country to protect him until the trial. Inaccurate. <laughs> no, I was like, this is one sentence and it is not correct. I was like, when is a trial ever mentioned? No. Well, originally, no, in the very beginning of the movie, when they're explaining to Rachel that he's witnessed a crime and they can't leave Philadelphia until they've gone through identifying the suspect. He says, and then just so you know, you'll probably have to come back to Philly for a trial. Come back. But then after he realizes who the actual perp is, mm-hmm. all mention of a trial goes out the window and there is no expectation. That is not why he's in Amish country. He is not Samuel's bodyguard. Yeah, he's actually, yeah, he's actually not there to protect him which was my memory of the movie. So my memory was he's, he, they go into like witness protection and Harrison Ford is there to protect him. Nope, that's not what happens. <laughs> I think that is what you described it to me. So maybe that's why I thought this jacket might be accurate, but okay. Um, so as usual, Megan, I generated a random number between one and 50. This week it was 28. And I believe Aaron will also be joining us in this little activity. So Meg, take it away. All right, here is my 28-word summary. Unfortunately for hot cop Harrison Ford, but fortunately for us, there's not much to do when hiding out in Amish country besides carpentry, sponge baths, and drinking lemonade. So much lemonade. I had forgotten that somehow. I will never forget that scene again. I think you you emphasized the most important part of this film, which is hot cop Harrison Ford. Yeah. (laughs) No, absolutely. Okay. Uh, My summary child of indeterminate age goes into a Philadelphia train station bathroom alone and obviously witnesses a murder. Only moral cop hides out in Amish country for explained reasons. And Erin, what is yours? All right, I have to pull out my uh, old school technology here, my paper. I did just write one real quick too. Oh yay, that's exciting. All right, mine is rugged cop hangs in Amish country to protect witness child, makes lots of love eyes at hot Amish mama. She shows him her boobs, but they only kiss. <laughs> like, that's, yeah, perfect. Much more important for us. Yes. And Telly. I've got cute Amish boy witnesses a knifing in Philly and IDs a cop for the crime. Detective book goes to Lancaster to heal and flirt with widow Rachel Lapp. Yes, you guys did such a good job. <laughs> like always, so impressed because I struggle with these summaries. I also think Tilly and Aaron, you both got at the romance plot core of this film. Like, would you guys call this movie a romance? Uh, yeah, I, yeah. Sure. I I personally would not call it a a romance because there's no happily ever after. There's definitely a strong romantic element, That's in my fair. opinion. 
it was interesting to watch it. Like when we reviewed it for Just Plain Wrong, we were really looking at it like what's right, what's wrong about how they're portraying the Amish. So I was sort of viewing it as a romance this time around. And that was a really interesting angle to sort of analyze the movie from. I still agree though. I agree with you, Meg, that it's more, more like an action movie than a romance. It's just interesting because so much of the middle of the movie forgets that it's an action movie. <laughs> yeah. <True. laughs> yeah, it's, it's bookended really by action, but the middle is like this just pastoral drama. It's only, yes. only there's not even that much drama. It's just pastoral. Yeah. It was interesting. But that said, there were a lot of romance novel or romance genre tropes in this. I also might have stuck a bunch of cop tropes in here. <laughs> I, I rely on Lane for most of the tropes. So the only ones, so I identified that there's forbidden love. So this is the kind of love where you know, people fall in love across classes or across races. Um, and most of the time, to me anyway, because I mostly read romance novels, this is what I see in movies. <laughs> I don't read it in books, but I'm sure there are books out there where, you know, there's a doomed fatal love affair or whatever. Is this a love story or a lust story? I mean, that's a good question. That is a good question. I think it's up to you. I was thinking about this because there's actually not a ton of dialogue between Harrison Ford and Kelly, whatever her name is. I should talk, I should say between Book and Rachel. <laughs> there's not a lot of dialogue, right? So I feel like it's up to you as a viewer to fill in their romance. So are they actually falling in love? Are they falling in love with this idea of each other? Are they just attracted to each other? I think it's up to the viewer to decide. And maybe this is my romance novel reader brain being a little brainwashed, but the end of a love story is they end up together, right? Like you mm -hmm. said, this isn't a happily ever after. And I thought it was interesting when you guys covered this movie in your podcast, Tilly and Aaron, you talked about the barn raising sequence and how it was long and how you weren't quite sure what it was adding to the movie. And the only answer I could come up with was that it was the only scene where you could maybe see Book being enchanted by something about Amish life, life other than Rachel. Mm -hmm. Like if you were trying to build any dramatic tension that perhaps he would be interested in staying for a reason other than just her, that was the one scene where he was integrating into the community and being competent at something outside of violence. Yeah, I like I like that thought. And I, it was so was long and boring. Of, yeah, I was thinking <laughs> this the second viewing that I did about the distinction between um, love and lust, and thinking that Rachel was actually kind of more lust driven. She identified someone she was interested in and something she wanted and kind of went for it. And he was the one who was maybe more enamored of her on an ideological level, where he was sort of interested in the way of life and interested in the attitudes and interested in her spunk and you know, also her as a person. So maybe he was in love, but she wasn't. Like, I think that she knew that it was always going to end and he maybe didn't. Interesting. I, I totally agree. I totally see that. Yes. <laughs> well, you never see any scene where she's into him 
outside of her home. Mm-hmm. Like she's like he's interested in her in his world and in hers, if you're drawing that distinction, where she only expresses interest in him once they're back in Lancaster County. Mm-hmm. I guess the romance happens on her terms, which is kind of nice. Refreshing. Absolutely. I think it would have been if the romance had happened. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the potential for romance. The lust happens on her terms. Yes. Just saying, girl, I, I have done more than just turn around confronted with 1985 Harrison Ford. <laughs> Did and I so, have oh, so many more dirty jokes scattered throughout <laughs> this. <laughs> but it was interesting to watch this again. And uh, one thing I didn't notice the first time around is that the super long, unnecessarily long barn raising scene happens right before the sponge bath. Mm-hmm. And like, I sort of wondered if like, so she's having that conversation at the end of the barn raising about with that older Amish woman and like, we're gossiping about you. And she's like, charitable thoughts, I hope. And the lady's like, no, not really. <laughs> and then she goes home and does the sponge bath thing. And I'm like, I wonder if she's just like, you know what, if they think I'm doing this, I'm like, if they think this is happening, I'm just going to go for it. Yeah. Um, she's like, what's the point? They're already talking anyway. Yeah. Well, and that's a really interesting insight because I know Meg and I get really frustrated in romance novels when the hero does something for the heroine's best interest. Because mm-hmm. it's like, screw you, dude. If she's expressing what she wants, respect that. Like some holier than thou dude trying to project what she wants onto her is never something I appreciate. And so if that is what was happening there, which I think you're totally right, the timing implies it. It's interesting that it didn't bother me in the movie, perhaps because it wasn't as explicit in the way it would have in text. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Just don't tell me what I want. I know what I want. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So this is a heart comfort book. Yeah. So why does book stay around in Amish country? Because he got shot before like as they were driving out of philly he got shot and then when he gets to her house he drops her off and then he tries to drive away but he can't make it because he lost too much blood i guess which is when he one of my favorite tropes car hits the only possible object it could hit in an open (laughs) field it's true it's like a completely open field and he runs into the birdhouse This is not genre specific as far as a trope goes, but think of how many car accidents are in movies where it's like clearly a controlled crash into the single obstacle. (laughs) Love it. That's true. Uh, And then I called it a place out of time trope, which like, yes, there's this part of they're in Amish country and then the whole Amish community is sort of living out of time, right? They're not living in modern America. But I would I would argue that it's not just because they're in Amish country, but, you know, because he's recovering somewhere else. Like, I don't know, this, this relates to romance novels like the amnesia trope, right? Where you lose your memory and then you like wake up and you're like, wow, everything is so new. Um, or even not amnesia, but like- the honeymoon phase, right? Mm-hmm. Like this idea that you are detached from reality because for whatever reason, you have not had to live your everyday life in the way Book gets a break from his everyday reality in this movie. Right, mm-hmm. but I think Rachel does too. I think she gets a little break from her life too. 
this time around, I definitely noticed that Book, when he's in Lancaster County, he gets a taste of everything that his sister says that he should have. Because we see him in Philly, we see him being aggressive and abusive and part of a racist system. And when we see his sister, she's like, you need to settle down, you need to find someone, you're making your career, your whole life, you, you've got to change. And we see him trying that, on, that lifestyle on. He gets to see what it would be like to relax and to take things slowly and to work with his hands and to hang out with a kid and flirt with a woman, you know? And then, of course, he decides that's not for him because he's the noble hero and he has to turn his back for what's well, best. Uh, and that's really interesting because one of the tropes I put in is that Hira has to wear her dead husband's clothes, and that happens a lot in widows and romance novels. But I think when you talk about him trying on this lifestyle, it's interesting that the pants are always a little too short on him. <laughs> like, beyond the debate I know Meg wants to have later about if Amish clothes can be hot. No, but he, like, she fixes them. He Eventually. Yes, eventually. Because she's like, oh, he can fit in here. I don't know. It was a metaphor. Right, but, like, the metaphor is him trying on the life and literally trying on the clothes, which mm-hmm. I'm, I never mind being bashed over the head with stuff like that. Go for it. I know, right? <laughs> Um, Danny Glover and Harrison Ford are cops. I knew, having no context other than Meg telling me something about witness protection, which was wrong, and a sponge bath, that this was going to be a cop crime movie the second I saw Danny Glover. <laughs> right? What do you want from me? Okay. Okay, so Lane has identified this trope that she and I usually love, which is the only good cop in a corrupt institution. I, I mean, I think he is a better cop than the other ones, but I don't know if he's like a good cop. I mean, he's not actively trafficking drugs. Right. <laughs> but he is like violent and racist and, you know. Okay, I take your point and you are absolutely right. And we can have a broader conversation about the implications on policing in the 1980s that this movie thrusts upon us. But- I think this movie is saying corrupt cops are those that are um, selling the takes from drug busts on the black market to criminals. Yes. So by the movie's definition of being an only good cop in the corrupt institution, that is the truth. You yeah. are right that do I think ultimately John Book is the type of character who should be a policeman? No, I do not. <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> I will say after after I watched the movie, I texted Lane. I was like, "It holds up." I was like, "But it also uh, really supports the defund the police movement." So yeah. we're good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it does lead into a couple of other big cop tropes. So like his up to this point, Tilly mentioned a bunch how his sister talks about how he has no family and how he has these longing for this longing for a community and increased interpersonal connection. Well, his most important relationship up to this point in his life is pretty much shown to be his cop partner. Mm-hmm. And the father figure of his, uh, you know, mentor within the police academy is uh, the big bad in this movie. So it leans into a lot of those really traditional spy. Meg and I just read two spy romance novels where the spy mentor was the villain. So it's like, oh, okay. I've seen this before this week. <laughs> this week. <laughs> it's like every time. It's almost every time because who, I, I don't know, in a spy movie, 
the actual villain is never the other country's spies. It's always coming. It's always coming from within. It's the mole. Like, yeah. Do you guys remember that terrible game show? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly. Yes, I do. It was really bad. <laughs> so of course he's in hiding, but he has a really bad day. He has a really bad day, and he does one you know, thing that's really out of character for his assumed identity. And immediately this like signals to everyone, like this is what tells the corrupt cops back in the city where he is. So they go to get him like immediately. And there's like the subtrope of this, which is everyone knows everything you do in a small town. Right. Like eventually, and I don't know, I mean, this is more of a question for Aaron and Tilly. How small a town is... Lancaster PA's general populace. Well, Lancaster, this like is actually a city, um, but the most of the Amish are in like the Lancaster County area, which would be made up of a lot of really small towns. I don't know exact populations, but we're talking like one or two thousand people for the most part. So, so it's reasonable. Yeah, it is reasonable to consider that if the cops were on the lookout for someone and there was a fist fight, <laughs> might <laughs> that might be brought to the attention of, of the locals. <laughs> I didn't appreciate, I don't, I actually typically really like violent movies, like big explosion, but not like interpersonal violence, but the like, we just bombed a bunch of stuff and there are explosions are like one of my favorite kind of escapism. Even I didn't appreciate the zoom in on the bloody nose. Oh my God, yeah. That like lingered. And I know Meg hates that stuff more than I do. I, I skipped it this time around. I like jumped like 10 minutes ahead. <laughs> I, I, so my husband and I don't like watching the same kind of movies. So we, we usually actually don't watch movies together, but I convinced him to watch this by telling him it was a, an, an action movie, like a cop action movie. And he was like, okay, I'll watch with you. And we watched it. And, um, yeah, he was like, this is not an action movie. Um, but he was very interested in, so my husband is French. And so he had no idea, like he knows about the Amish, right? <laughs> and he, he knows that they like have horse and buggies and stuff like that. That's all he knows basically. And so there was all this, there's, I thought well done uh, emphasis on, you know, nonviolence and the principles and what they believe. And he's like, why are they talking about this? And I was like, well, because the Amish are nonviolent. And he's like, what? Had no, he had no idea. Interesting. Um, so that was really, it was really interesting to watch with him um, as someone who was completely unfamiliar with it. So that was really interesting to me. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, well, it was, he was like, you really want to watch an action movie? And I was like, yeah. 1985 Harrison Ford is hard to pass up but that's something we talked about in our episode was like in a lot of the more modern media that we read about Amish they really don't talk about the nonviolent like part of that faith at all so we thought it was pretty remarkable that they even well that they talked about it and they talked about it a lot like at several points in the movie it comes up um, as a plot point and I think to the movie's credit whenever Harrison Ford is violent it's cast in a light that doesn't particularly make him look good. Yeah. Like even- Except for the end. Yeah. You know, grabbing a random black guy from a bar and shoving him up against a car. Rachel is pretty clear. Like you're, <laughs> you are being 
horrible to this Mm -hmm. person. Yeah. And when he's beating up the tourist who's an asshole, it's very clear that everyone involved is like, you should not do this. This is an overreaction. This is not what we want. And this will not end well for you. Yeah. And all of those things happen. And and so when he does, you know, choose violence at the very end of the movie, it's a little bit more heartbreaking. It's like, man, you had some opportunities for learning and reflection here. And, you know, it, it, it didn't seem to take. Well, and you guys pointed out in your episode that, like, the final confrontation with the big bad was solved nonviolently. But he did straight up murder two people immediately preceding that. Yeah. Yeah. So like. So. <laughs> I, I thought it was really interesting thinking back on it. Every person who was violent in this movie was a cop. Like every single um, example of violence was it was like a cop doing it. Interesting. You know, like the initial murder was a cop was cop killing a cop. Right. Sorry if I'm spoiling anything on the 1985 movie. I already said it was spoiled when it was Danny Glover. Right. <laughs> I know. Um, so, like, that's the initial thing that kicks it off. A cop kills a cop, uh, and then they they start shooting each other. Cops killing more cops. It's, it's just cops hitting or shooting at cops until Harrison Ford punches this tourist dude who although he was being, you know, completely out of line and terrible, was not actually being violent. Like, he was doing something disgusting. He was, like, smearing ice cream on... I I mean, I think that depends on a definition of violence. Like, it's not bloody, but that was definitely violent behavior in terms of the intent to commit harm. It was abusive behavior, yes, for sure. But I wouldn't... I mean, they weren't... He wasn't physically hurting him. So anyway, I just thinking back on it, I was very interested to see that. I was like, oh, so there are there they're just saying that if you're a cop, you you are violent. Like whether you're a good cop or a bad cop. I mean that meshes with my impressions. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. Um, okay, so <laughs> I mean, Meg, it's surprising. It's not one of Meg's favorite things about this movie was is that she's always felt like it was driven by the female gaze in a similar way to romance novels and I think we all just need to put aside the fact that they cast Harrison Ford because inherently that is female gaze oriented (laughs) like other than that do you guys agree do you feel like this was more about a woman's desire and framing than men's yes and no I think the women woman's motives are sort of obscured we don't really know much about rachel or what her motives are we can see that she is doing something that she wants that she has agency we don't understand where she's coming from in the way that we understand where book is coming from but i do think in terms of where the camera lingers you know we've got the Mm -hmm. sponge bath scene which is full frontal nudity of the woman and that does not you know we don't ever see harrison ford completely shirtless except for when he's like being healed from a bullet wound so you know scene shot for shot scene for scene nudity wise you know you would think that it it would be more male gaze but i think i think overall the camera spends a lot more time on harrison ford you know doing 
sweaty carpentry things in a dashing manner. <laughs> um, or, I don't know, like, can you drink lemonade provocatively? Because I feel yes. like it does. This movie um, answers that emphatically. Yes. <laughs> so I think just in terms of where the camera lingers and the things that he's doing, the fact that he has sort of a domestic side added to the Harrison Fordness makes it fairly female gaze driven. Well, I think it's helpful if we're going to talk about the female gaze to talk about what the male gaze is, right? So the, the whole idea of the male gaze is that usually when you're watching a film, um, the camera, so the camera that we're watching everything through is not an objective lens, it's a subjective lens, right? And so subjectively, usually when we're watching it, we're watching it as though it were from the perspective of a man, the male gaze, right? So we see this, any film where a woman gets out of a car and the camera is on her legs and then it pans up to her face, right? This is the male gaze. Uh, what I thought was really interesting here is, I mean, it actually, anyway, so the, the, like the lemonade, for example, it's like completely, she goes and gives it to him and then it's just, he like drinks it, but it like, it like, he doesn't even get it all in his mouth. Like he goes down and I was like, this is like a commercial that normally would be a woman, you know, like eating a hamburger and it's like dripping down her naked body. But this is like Harrison Ford drinking this lemonade. It was just very fascinating to me that it, it really felt like a reversal. Uh, and yes, even the, the, when she is naked, I think there are two things that would separate it from being a male gaze. And I think first you see her, she's looking at herself in the mirror so already you get this female. That's impressive. <laughs> really, really lost over there. Um, okay, so you get the, she's looking at herself. So it's emphasizing there's a woman looking at a woman, right? Um, and then she decides to turn around and expose herself to him. So it's not, he's not like, it's not like a voyeuristic kind of thing. So anyway, I thought it was really interesting from that perspective. Yeah, there you go. That okay. makes me Ooh, think retrieve the, my glasses now. That makes me think th uh, the barn raising scene makes a bit more sense when we consider the female gaze. Like, did that oh. whole scene just exist so she could look at him? Absolutely. I was listening to your episode and you're like, what was the point of it? And I was like, um, so Harrison Ford could put on his belt and then do some <laughs> carpentry, obviously. She was really turned on by his interest in woodworking. Yes. <laughs> yes, she was. Mm -hmm. It does make me wonder how much of her interest was her belief that he might actually join the Amish or if she was I mean she doesn't kiss mm. him until she knows he's leaving yeah mm -hmm. but I wonder if she was sort of holding out or hoping that like I mean I hope it wasn't I can change him because that never ends well <laughs> but uh, I mean maybe honestly he has, he has hidden depths maybe because you know before yeah. she was like you're good at you're good at whacking <laughs> <laughs> Just, just such a mild but very effective burn like yeah. it's, the actual words are so like childlike even it's like someone saying that you're a poopy face you're only good at whacking but like what a burn <laughs> his, career, his career is his life and she has boiled it down to you whack people <laughs> like, 
<laughs> it's Good true. For her. <laughs> well, but I also think it's interesting, Tilly, what you're pointing out. Like, yeah, she doesn't decide to, you know, jump him until she knows he's leaving. But to a degree, it could just be she's waited to make a pass at him until he's made a decision. Like, she doesn't want to be the reason he does one or the other. And once he's decided, she'll take what she wants from him, regardless of which it is. Yeah, it's very respectful of her. Which, but also, like, go, girl, get you some. <laughs> right? I know. I'm not sure. And this also, is... oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, I was going to say Harrison Ford can raise my barn, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was, I'm not sure this is, yeah. This is something I wanted to mention. I'm not sure this is the exact right moment, but I'm going to do oh, it anyway. Go for it. Um, one thing I noticed is that she always has her bonnet off when she is hanging with Harrison Ford in slightly sexy ways, which is not typical. Like Amish women would never take off their bonnet if they were around an unmarried man. And I actually didn't really notice that. I mean, I knew she took off her bonnet the first time I watched it. But this time I noticed just how often it was. Mm. And I wondered if it was, well, I don't wonder. I think it's because it was her signal that at those moments she's acting like a woman. She's not acting like an Amish woman. And yeah, I just, I found that really fascinating. And it makes me, like, she doesn't have it on for the kiss at the end. Mm -hmm. So I think that's her maybe final, like, yeah, we're going to do this. And then I'm going to go back to my life and put my bonnet on and go, hang out with Daniel who I don't really who doesn't really get my juices flowing but you know <laughs> yeah I, I don't know I found that really interesting this this rewatch yeah that's interesting I mean how I know he's injured I know there are certain like caveats to this specific situation but like he's in her home right mm-hmm. like it's not like her bonnet's off out in society with unmarried dudes like there happens to be an unmarried guy in her house and the first couple of weeks days i indeterminate amount of time he's there he's like in and out of consciousness and she's largely playing nursemaid and he's kind of unaware of her presence or attire Mm -hmm. so I mean like is it would it be that strict even in such a personal setting or is this situation so bizarre it is a bizarre situation I would probably like I think Tilly may have mentioned this actually in our episode but it would have been really unlikely for them to leave her alone to nurse Mm -hmm. him like someone else would have moved in Um, or they would have sent him off to someone else's house, like a married couple. Um, I guess if the situation were to play out, like as depicted in the movie, there's a chance in the middle of the night she might have her bonnet off. But really, like, that's a big thing um, is to keep your bonnet. Like, you only take your bonnet off, I mean, really in front of your husband, right, Tilly? Yeah. Pretty much. It's, yeah, I think we see her without her bonnet and with her hair down when she is staying at Book's sister's house, which makes sense because she's sort of getting ready for bed. Mm. But yeah, it's pretty much, it's part of your outfit for the day. As soon as you get dressed, your your bonnet's on, even if you're home. I just don't, like, the second I'm home, like, bobby pins are out. I'm like, no, this is uncomfortable. I'm home, like, bras off, you know? It's the thought of keeping a hat on. I'm like, why? I'm home. Yeah. Well, to, I mean, to be fair, (laughs) <laughs> they may be uncomfortable, but so is every other aspect of Amish life. <laughs> so, <laughs> one more, what's one more thing on your head if you're already in the wearing a cape dress? You know? uh, so let's let's talk about the dancing in the barn. So, like, I feel like for us, it's like very 70s, 
sexy and like very fun because he, you know, he's fixing his car and he gets one thing to work, which is the radio, which also my husband was like, if your battery's dead, he's like, turn the radio off, <laughs> turn the windshield wipers off. He's like, that's not how you fix the car. But I was like, I was like, Julian, like we're watching this now. <laughs> he's a cop, not a mechanic. <laughs> that's right. He's a carpenter, not a mechanic. <laughs> um, but talk to us about what this would mean in the Amish community, because I feel like it is actually like way more transgressive than we're thinking. And I think you guys mentioned you didn't talk about it in your episode, so I'm actually interested on your take. Go for it, Tilly. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, there's the joke that I, I guess if you're Mennonite or Amish, you've probably heard your whole life, which is the reason that Mennonites don't have sex standing up is because it might lead to dancing. <laughs> so that's the, the flip the flip side of why Mennonites and Amish traditionally don't dance is because it's very provocative and it leads to sex. So don't do it. Uh, and there are similar but slightly more varied um, understandings of music too. Sort of music maybe being for church only and no, no instruments. So the fact that she's listening to music and she's dancing with books, she definitely knows she's crossing a line. She doesn't um, have her bonnet on. She doesn't have her bonnet on. There's no one around. She, this is the very willing step for her to be like meeting him on his terms. Um, and the fact that she's remotely graceful at all is to her credit. Because <laughs> when I try and dance, it doesn't look very good. You didn't have Harrison Ford to lead. So, you, I mean, you can't blame you. That's true. Maybe Harrison Ford brings out the best. And this is like, I mean, this movie was filmed in 1985, but this would still be true of Amish and even most Mennonite communities. Um, I went to a Mennonite high school uh, and we didn't have prom. We had something called banquet where we sat around and ate food and had some sort of entertainment. There was often an after party that did include dancing, but it wasn't like the official school sanctioned activity. Um, and I think that they still only do banquet. Some of the Mennonite high schools ha have started doing prom or, or are starting to, I guess, explore that dancing might might be okay in certain contexts. And the Mennonite colleges sort of uh, yeah. let that go a couple decades ago. But like when my parents were in college, I don't think there were any dances. And it's interesting because the song playing from the radio is very consciously an oldie. And it was an oldie in 1985. Yeah. So, that would like... mean nothing to her. She would have no idea. Well, no, no, no. She could, she could have maybe heard that song. I don't know if she was out and around town or something, but like, but it would I have think been for oldie the, to him and and totally new to her. And I think that's kind of the point was like the way they were dancing. I mean, we're talking Vogue Madonna era. Like, this was not the dancing of 1985. This is a song and a sort of style of sw slow swaying that would have been very dated to him, but it was like you said, incredibly transgressive to her. And I think that's more of a statement scene. Like, I realized it was a statement scene, but hearing you guys reflect on it, I'm realizing just how big a statement and how big a sacrifice on some level it was for her to make beyond, like, it's probably something she's literally never done before. Yeah. Which is- You know, now that weird. I think about it, maybe she's trying on a lifestyle too. You know, I, I was thinking of it, you know, it's mostly on her terms, all of their flirting and, and the kiss at the end are on her terms. But, you know, she does 
spend some time in the English world. She's met his sister, which is kind of far to thing to happen before your first date because you don't have a date. Um, but yeah, she's letting him look at her and she's choosing to dance with him. She's kind of trying on some behaviors that that she wouldn't otherwise get a chance to. Well, I think this lends itself to your point that like you don't really have a sense of what's driving her because I don't think as a viewer you have any sense of how appealing she finds any of it beyond Harrison Ford. Yeah. I and I mentioned it before but I think it's very interesting that she she never talks about anything with him. Like they don't really talk about anything except you know the the murder right um and how he can't have a gun like they don't talk about i'm sorry they do talk about things but they don't talk about like relationship things right um so i think that's really interesting she basically is like turns around like offers herself to him although she doesn't say it she doesn't say anything all she does is allow him to see her and then he like runs away and, and then the next day he approaches her and he's like look if we had done this, then it would mean that we'd have to make a decision and we can't do it. And she doesn't even respond. Like, she's just like, doesn't talk to him about it. I, anyway, it, I, I He walks away like, before she can respond. Yeah. She turns to say something and he's gone. And I want to know what know she if, was going to say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know if she was going to say anything though. She didn't talk, she didn't turn around with her mouth open to be like, hey, I don't know. I think, I think she looked like she was going to say something. I do too. I was absolutely like he cut her off to have the last word and that made me mad. <laughs> I don't know. All right. I just want to, I have two things to comment on and I just like, they're not really romance related. I just want to know if I was the only one who picked up on them. One, the way everyone in the train station and then the police station were casually touching that child. I didn't notice. Like they'd ruffle his hair or they'd like make a passing comment. And like somebody called him over to give him a cookie. I was like, and he was, I, I think it was implied he approached a pedophile who was trained to a chair and none of the cops were trying to stop him. I was like, what in the world is going down in this? Oh, in the station? police station. Sorry. I was like, I was like, I don't remember that part in the train station, but no, you're right. In the police station lane, people do that to kids all the time. My kid gets so much crap. It's crazy. Like we'll go somewhere and people give her stuff. I'm just like, maybe it's also pandemic brain, but I'm like, why are all of these people touching this child? And also not the soundtrack, like not the songs that were playing when they were dancing. I found the score very jarring. Yeah, no, I did too. I, I remarked on it um, when I watched the it. The ending chase scene is like electronic. The whole thing is like synth, heavy synth Yeah, wave. it was yeah. very, very weird. I don't, I think that that's one of the things other than, you know, the overt racism that I found the most dated about this movie. I was like, this score, because a lot of times scores like are meant to evoke feelings that you're not quite getting from the dialogue or the scene composition or whatever. And I felt like this score was exclusively a detraction. And I thought it was interesting when you guys were talking about all the awards this was nominated for slash one that score and sound editing did not come up because <laughs> I was like maybe even in 1985 they knew this was not on the nose there yeah it remind it reminded me when apparently all my favorite movies are from the 80s of Lady Hawk I don't know if you know that movie like 
amazing okay elaine this is a, okay next next movie we have to watch it's amazing but the score in that movie is like hilarious it's it's like this medieval movie they're set in medieval times and it's like synthesizer it's great okay. I, I actually like love the score to that movie but <laughs> it's very weird uh okay so we talked we've talked to you guys about some amish stuff here's my question does anyone actually look hot in plain clothes? So I'm sure Tilly will have thoughts on this too. I would argue that the men have an advantage here. I think men can look hot in the clothes. It's the men's haircuts that tend to be the problem. Cause like the boys <laughs> yeah. and the, the, up until you're married, you basically rock a bowl cut. Like literally the put a bowl on your head, shave around, like it's, if you live in an area with a lot of Amish people, you can pretty quickly identify like the boys on Rumspringa because they have a very distinct haircut. Um, and then the women get stuck in these really unflattering potato sack cape dresses. They're literally designed like if, as though like the modest dress style is not modest enough. They have to put this extra layer of, layer of fabric over the front to just really hide any evidence of boobs at all. Like can't see them and they always have to wear stockings. Um, yeah, so I think men, perhaps women, it's a bit more difficult. There is something like 1950s old timey hot about the suspenders and pants. Yeah, I agree. But it's the rest of it. Yeah, I, I concur with Aaron on this. I think, oh, sorry, my roommates are moving around upstairs and making creaking noises. I don't know if they're coming through. Uh, I, yeah, I concur with Aaron on this. I think it's a lot easier for the men to look attractive. The clothes tend to fit their shape. Um, no one's worried about them hiding broad shoulders or anything. Uh, so, you know, maybe if a man is wearing a plain coat and they've got several different layers and, you know, more formal hat on, you know, it's more restrictive and, and less attractive but the women i think are too <laughs> <the> beginning <laughs> um and that's with some level of intention mm -hmm. uh it's it's sturdy clothing and it is not meant to be flattering and i doubt there's much concern for comfort either well and then so this movie is apparently set during the mid-atlantic summer which is super humid and so they're like all sweating all the time but Harrison Ford is like unbuttons he takes off his jacket so he's just wearing a shirt and it's like rolled up so he's got the forearms and then the whole thing is kind of transparent is that allowed like are you allowed to like roll up your shirt yeah could men get like half undressed I I don't actually know for sure but I want to say yes <laughs> my understanding is that especially during like physical labor, if you're farming or doing um, strenuous work, it, it's fairly open for you to roll up your shirt sleeves and, okay. uh, you know, breathe a bit more. So then probably shouldn't take your shirt off. Yeah, probably shouldn't take your shirt off. And if you were walking into town, you probably wouldn't. Okay. So, but, so then it sounds like you're definitely right that it would definitely flatter men rather than women <laughs> for sure i knew it was bad when like they tried to give her more of a shape by putting on an apron right. 
like, oh no, I can honestly say I've never put on an apron to get sexier. <laughs> no one has. <laughs> she did. That's right. <laughs> one exception. <laughs> one exception. <laughs> one exception. And it was a woman trying to seduce Harrison Ford. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why she was so willing to let him look at her topless she's right? just like, she right. like it's all no or nothing idea. he sees me in a cape dress and nothing happens or he sees me as i am buck naked exactly she's like, i don't have long there is no in between <laughs> those are the only two choices sadly uh, okay and then she her it's her father-in-law that she's living with right okay so so he is he's worried that she's going to be shunned is this would this be like the next step for her or i i feel like okay it so we we talk about shunning a lot because it comes up a lot in media Mm -hmm. i will say she's definitely breaking more rules than most of the the other instances um where shunning is threatened but I don't, I, I don't think that would be the next step. Like if anything, she'd have to meet with the bishop and they'd tell her she has to change and they'd maybe punish her, have her confess in front of the church. But assuming she'd be willing to do those things, they wouldn't shun her, especially because like she just lost her husband and we don't really know the story behind that. But I, I would imagine a lot of grace being extended to her. Okay. I would hope. So would I, I think there are extenuating circumstances too in the fact that he's been shot and she is helping to care for him she's not the only like i guess they call a a medic or a a elder man who is probably good with poultices or herbs i just figured he was a vet that could be um yeah so she's she's taking care of him and that's a generous thing taking care of an outsider is something that's encouraged you know it's you know dancing with the outsider less so but uh and given that her son you know witnessed a murder (laughs) there are many layers of complications here i can see why they would keep it on the down low that he was there for his safety and to protect her reputation but yeah i the community wouldn't move straight to shining for that i don't think that makes sense I just didn't know how real a threat it was. And I like, even when she tells her father-in-law, I haven't done anything to break the rules. I was like, weren't you just dancing? Maybe that's another rule. Maybe I don't know what's happening. Right? She was definitely breaking the rules. Now, shunning is like extremely rare, but yeah, if you read Amish romance books or watch any sort of media with Amish people, you, you would never know that. Okay, so in the movie, they have one extended kiss. I, don't, I guess it's not just one kiss, but it's like one kissing scene. It was like a lot of mouth movements. Yes. Yeah. I find it really awkward. Like it's a weird kiss. Her eyes were also open in moments that they should not have been. She wanted to experience everything. (laughs) It's a goodbye kiss. (laughs) She wanted to look at Harrison Ford as long as she does. I want to look at Harrison Ford too, but not every pore at like this (laughs) distance. So, but was it, so here's what I was wondering this time when I watched it, I was wondering if it was just like a fantasy kiss. Like, did, did they actually kiss? Oh, yeah, maybe it was all in their heads. Oh yeah, that's, anyway, that's my, my new idea is it wasn't, an, it wasn't real, but. I think, I think if it wasn't real, it would, 
it would have been perfect and not awkward. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> I think I think it was awkward enough that it was probably real, and I and I hope for them. Uh, I mean, I hope it was good for them, but, but I also <laughs> like maybe it was confirmation. Maybe that was the icing on the on the cake that said, "Yeah, no." This <laughs> like, I'm yeah, now picturing him awkwardly whispering, "Was that good for you?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. It was the last straw. He was like, "It would be really tough to stay," and the kiss wasn't that good. So I'm out. <laughs> okay I didn't have anything else on the notes except for lots of content warnings yeah so I know you guys talked a lot about like how idealized sort of this pastoral existence was in the film but I think what was interesting is the scenes where it was most celebrated also seemed to be the ones where the gender roles were most strictly enforced and I'm aware that like obviously a lot of Amish society is pretty patriarchal. A lot of traditional societies are. But I, I still thought the lack of critical lens on that kind of bothered me. Like, I feel like if this exact same movie was made today and not back then, at least lip service would have had to been paid to an explanation as to why there was so much division and why she'd never questioned it. So you think maybe he would have brought it up later, you know, or... Or maybe when she was in Philadelphia, like, talking about the life she has. Or, like, during the barn raising, when the women weren't up building the barn. Like, you showed an interest in woodworking. Why aren't you helping build the barn? Like, I just feel like it was the fact that not only was it not addressed, but that the scenes where his life were presented as, like, the most idyllic in Amish society or pastoral, to use the word Tilly and Aaron used a bunch in their episode, like, were the scenes where women were serving men lunch while they did the hard manual labor. Yeah, that's true. I think in a lot of the Bonnet novels we read, there's usually like a throwaway line that mentions that you know the women just love being a homemaker they think that being the nurturing baker is just something that they cherish and they don't see anything wrong with traditional gender roles and there are some authors who take it way too far and are like mm -hmm. this is the only thing i can do and then there are some authors who are like this one woman doesn't like baking but she's gonna get married and bake anyway <laughs> um and both options aren't particularly critical. Um, and that's one thing I would love to see more of um, in things we read. Well, I was, I, I have listened to most of your episodes because I just think it's like really fascinating. Um, also because the, technically the books that you review and the books that we review are supposedly in the same genre, but they're like very different. Yeah, you wouldn't know it to look at it. Right. Um, because so we primarily review historical romance and we also one of the things we like about historical romance is that it brings this critical lens to gender roles and I think they're able to explore contemporary gender roles through the lens of this historical era but I feel like it's almost the opposite in the bonnet novels right it's like yes, we're going to critically look at gender roles, contemporary gender roles by bringing this past era here and saying this is better. 
So I, it's kind of like this opposite take on it, um, which is also probably why we don't read bonnet novels. <laughs> so, you yeah. know, I just also lack really of porn. <laughs> that too. No, and I mean, we even encounter like a lot of them put like an author statement and they'll just flat out say that, that they value traditional gender roles or that that's why they write in this context, which we find pretty problematic. Um, and it makes it feel extra exploitative that they're writing about a culture that isn't theirs just because they like the gender roles that it possesses yeah. without examining why. Because I would argue that why Amish have traditional gender roles is probably different than the reasons that they want traditional gender roles. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, so basically in this film, it's not examined critically at all. No, and I doubt Rachel would have, I mean, she probably only had an eighth grade education. She probably doesn't have any friends or very few friends or family outside of the Amish community. Like I'm guessing her trip to Philadelphia and meeting Harrison Ford's sister is like maybe one of the first conversations she's had with a non-Amish woman. Um, it would depend a lot on her community and how fluid those boundaries are between Amish and people who've left. But it could be that she's just really never thought about it until Harrison Ford walked into her life. <laughs> I also stupidly, I guess, figured her sister was Amish in a different community. And I actually assumed that it was an implication that she was a transplant. Like, yes, she was Amish living in an Amish community, but that like, this wasn't her community originally, making her feel even more isolated. I would, I would agree, especially because one of the things that was very noticeable to us in the film was that there was not much family, um, which is unusual because the Amish tend to have large families and they tend to have intergenerational living situations. So the fact that she has a father-in-law, a son, is just like you're like where where is the brother-in-law to help with the farm where is her sister to help take care of her while she's grieving and the fact that you know maybe they met somewhere else and she you know moved to Lancaster makes some sense as to why there just aren't more people around but I guess help how many Amish communities are there in Baltimore would it be more reasonable to assume her sister had left <laughs> I was gonna say I don't know of any in Baltimore there would be some in Maryland, but yeah, probably not in Baltimore proper because yeah, they tend to be farmers. So yeah. 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 Maybe her sister did leave. Huh. I never Maybe she that. was English and she converted and became Amish and that's why she was dancing. <laughs> no, at that point, she Whoa. definitely would have jumped Harrison Ford. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she, would, she wouldn't have been nearly as content. I don't think, and all of her knee-jerk reactions seem very built into like her stance on against violence was very her attitude seemed like baked in from the beginning yeah i think also the other major problematic element which we've been touching on is the racism but i think it's also interesting to talk about it now through a police brutality lens mm -hmm. given the events of the last year and even the last couple of months i mean you see an ingrained racism in the police force not just in the way they go to this random bar and attack the first group of black men they think might reasonably, have, not reasonably, they think might have been participating in the incident that just occurred, how quickly they line up a random, like what's that called, perp line of black men 
of completely varied descriptions without any attempt to hone it down further. The fact that he appears to have a binder full of black men, which made me think of Mitt Romney's binder full of women. Like I had, I would, the implicit and explicit racism and even within the police force, the fact that his partner definitely felt like the token black good cop because they've made the bad guy a black cop. Like the explicit morals of the film, but also the implicit and explicit choices of the filmmakers all leaned into this very problematic perception of race. And I would, I, I think 1985 sometimes feels a, like a really long time ago and other times it doesn't. And this is one of those movies where it made it feel like a really long time ago. <laughs> Yeah, I I definitely agree. Um, I I do feel like this movie could be made today, but there would have to be a lot of changes to it, and that would I think be the major, the biggest change that would have to be made. And a time machine so that Harrison Ford could play John Book again. Yeah, maybe he could be the father-in-law. <laughs> That'd be good. Does Harrison Ford look Amish? The sad if thing is, I'm definitely now imagining like a straight to DVD sequel where she has a secret love child. <laughs> <laughs> where that kiss was to, not like, only real. Navigate the Amish. Yeah, Ooh, the kiss man. wasn't just real. It was just the prelude to the, the wild night they spent together. <laughs> oh my God, I have it. So the kiss was real. She got knocked up. She keeps it from Harrison Ford. But when her son grows up, he decides to join the police force. <gasps> Yes, you're right. So Samuel joins the cops. Harrison Ford ends up his mentor. And then in learning about Samuel's life, realizes that Samuel has a half-sibling and the timing means the father could only be one person. Done. Put me in charge of this. I am ready. <laughs> I'd read or watch that. I'd watch I would that. <laughs> I would definitely watch it. <laughs> oh my God. All right. I, I don't know how much more we need to mention for the the content warning because we've talked about it a lot already but about the the cops being super violent it's a violent film and then just in general the police force is seen as its own <laughs> lane calls it a cult they call it a cult, cult in they the do. movie yeah but then it's called a cult in the movie too so then we all know i also think there's a degree to which like the end result is harrison ford successfully polices his fellow cops mm -hmm. and the ending of the cops take care of their own and punish their own and this insular society to a degree works made me really uncomfortable well yeah i i remember when i was watching with my husband and he harrison ford figures out it's the it's the dirty cops and he's like okay we've got to go on the run I don't know what to do. And he's like, call the FBI. <laughs> he's like, duh, I'm bringing someone from outside. And his partner is like, should we call the feds? And he's like, no, no, no. And I was like, wait a minute. Like, he's right. You should call the feds. You but know? the feds Come are on. still cops. I don't know. Well, yes, but they should call someone from outside. At least. Yeah, there's internal investigations. There's, you know, or, or talk to like a DA or someone outside the system you yeah. know like there are probably a couple different routes you could take to you know go to the press there's a ton of different people you could tell but yeah you mean shotgun fight in an Amish barn wouldn't have been your first choice <laughs> it's weird isn't it 
Oh my God. But thank you, Tilly and Aaron, so much for joining us. If you guys haven't already, you should absolutely check out Just Plain Wrong Pod because they go over Witness. They have a whole episode on the movie that goes into a lot more detail on different aspects and the accuracy, especially, than we did here tonight. Um, and just thank you both so much. This has been awesome. Yeah, it's been really a lot fun. of fun. I was, I was very excited. So thank you guys so much for joining us.